You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So in our, in our heart of hearts, deep down in our hearts, each one of us wants to be unique, to be a little different from those around us to have a unique style of of clothing, or to listen to a specific artist that no one has discovered yet. And this was certainly the case for me when I was was younger. You know, I wasn't content with having the name Timon, so I, you know, took it a little further. I I listened to, to electronic dance music when everyone else was listening to, you know, more mainstream genres of music. Um, I had I had a I had a mohawk hairstyle for a while and I even dyed my hair purple. Um, I, I pierced my ears. You know, all my friends were learning acoustic guitar, so I learned classical guitar. Now, I was different, but it was all about me. Uniqueness for my own sake. And God wants his people to be unique as well. But unique for his sake and not theirs distinct from everyone else in their wholehearted devotion to him. And during our time in 1 Thessalonians, we've seen that this is called holiness. Holiness is what God desires, even requires from his people. It's it's not an option for those of us who are in Christ. We're going to see in our passage this morning a couple key battlegrounds in the fight for personal and corporate holiness. And my prayer is that it will awaken in each of us a renewed zeal to strive for holiness, to make active war on sins that steal our joy in Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll read from verses 1 to 12. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. The words will be projected behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly 
and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be, be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see in our passage today that Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to do three things. He exhorts them to, to keep walking, to keep separate, and to keep loving one another. So we'll start with the first point, to keep walking. So our, our passage today marks a turning point in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. The first half, the first three chapters, reestablished his relationship with them. So remember, Paul was only in Thessalonica about three weeks before he was forced out of the city by the Jewish authorities. And he wanted to remind his young church that he hadn't forgotten them. He was, he was their spiritual parent, and he was their pastor. He, he reminded them of vibrant evidences of grace, of spiritual life in them, and this gladdened his weary and lonely heart. He, he longed to see them again, to complete what was lacking in their Christian education. After, after confirming his love for them, he launches into a series of exhortations that we just read, appeals for them as they continue in the faith. When we take a closer look at Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, we get a, a little preview of what he will discuss at the end of the book, at the end of this letter. So look with me quickly again at chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. He says, <clears throat> Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and make the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Mutual love, blameless holiness, and the return of Christ. Our passage today, as we just read, it covers the first two, and next week we will see Paul's discussion about the return of Christ. Now look with me again at the first two verses of chapter 4. Paul introduces what he will exhort them to in the next 12 verses. This is what he says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Notice how he appeals to them as an authoritative representative of Jesus. He addresses them as brothers and sisters. He, he knows there are some holes in their, in their doctrine and their practice. But he sees them firstly as fellow members of the family of God. So what is he urging them to do? He says, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul is, is calling to their remembrance how he has instructed them in the Christian faith. This is what we saw in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Notice the similarity of the language here. He says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To please God, to walk in a manner worthy of God is the ultimate goal of one who follows Christ. What Paul said to them, what the Thessalonians received 
was instruction towards that aim. His goal as, as a pastor, the goal of any pastor, was to help them walk, to live in such a way that God would be pleased. He saw this was already happening, but he wanted them to keep at it. His commendation for their conduct was, becomes an implicit exhortation. You're doing great. Now keep running your race with even more vigor. These directions, as, as we see in verse 2, they're no mere suggestions. Look with me at verse 2. He says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This profound countercultural change of lifestyle was not, just, was not just good advice. The Thessalonians would have worshipped multiple Greek deities before converting to Christianity. But now, as we saw in chapter 1, they have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They had a singular new person, not an idol, a person that they served and worshipped and obeyed. These commands through Paul hail from Jesus himself. And it is obedience to Christ, pleasing God, that defines the Christian community a community distinct from all others in its singular devotion to God. Now, we know that the young Thessalonian Christians, they were on the right track. Paul says so himself. But he sees grave danger in the way that they are walking. They are ignoring what he has already told them in a key area, their sexual conduct. And this brings us to our second point. Paul encourages them, exhorts them, charges them to keep separate in their sexual conduct. What Paul hears, probably from Timothy, is that the Thessalonians' sexual conduct did not befit them as the people of God. And Paul hits on this straight away in verse 3. Look with me there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul links their morality directly to their relationship with God. God desires that his people be holy as he is holy, to be morally pure, to be separate and distinct. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. At, at conversion, one who believes in Jesus, Death for sinners is, is justified, is declared righteous before a holy God. A, a once-for-all-time declaration of holy, of blameless. But the Christian is also being made increasingly holy over the entirety of their Christian life. Part of their holiness, their separateness, is in regards to sexual conduct. Now, it's not that God prohibits sexual conduct of, of any kind. God created sex and even commands it. This is what we see in Genesis 1, the very beginning of mankind. After creating the first man and woman, this is what God says. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Sex is good. It is a blessing from God, one of his many gifts to mankind. 
This might sound provocative, but God loves good sex. Good sex defined as sexual activity within God's good design, namely between one man and one woman exclusively in the context of a marriage. Anything outside of this is immoral, against God's standards of what is good and what is right. And this is the sweeping prohibition Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to in verse 3. What does your sanctification look like in terms of sexual activity? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Completely, completely refrain from any kind of sex outside of God's good design. There's no, there's no wiggle room here. There's no loopholes. Completely abstain. But Paul continues in verse 4. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body. The meaning of this sentence is, is the most debated in the whole letter, specifically the meaning of the words translated as, as control and body. But I believe the best interpretation is, is this. Paul is urging them to learn how to control their sexual urges and their conduct. Positively, in verse 4, they are to do this in holiness and honor, to gain control over their sexual desires in a way appropriate to someone already declared holy in Christ, to restrain oneself in a way that respects both yourself and others. It's an other-centered orientation towards sex. Now, the opposite is how the Gentiles viewed sexual activity. So look with me in verse 5. He says, Control your own body, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Thessalonians, they, they lived in a context with a very tolerant attitude towards sexual conduct, especially outside of marriage. It was socially acceptable for young men to have sexual relationships before marriage. If we look at the first half of, of verse 6, it wouldn't have been uncommon for someone to transgress and wrong one's brother in this matter, to have an affair. The Greek great Greek orator Demosthenes, he says this about, about this era. He says, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day -day physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. It would be common for a man who owned female slaves to use his human property to satisfy his sexual desires. And Cicero expresses well the zeitgeist of ancient Greco-Roman times. This is what he says. Let not pleasure always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. And is this not the lust-filled spirit of our age as well? You see now how these restrictions on sexual conduct would sound odd to their culture at large. Why, why abstain from pleasure? Why exercise 
puritanical self-control amidst a climate of sexual liberty? Why can't I sleep with my sister-in-law if she attracts me or if I want to do it? Why not give in to my burning passions? People who think like this, as Paul tells us, do not know God. Ignorance of God is the primary cause of sexual immorality, of lust. Listen to how John Piper defines lust. He says, lust is a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. Lust is a sexual desire that disregards its object and dishonors its object and disregards God. Lust says, my pleasure is king. Your body is for my viewing pleasure, my imaginative pleasure, my physical pleasure. Lust says, my supreme regard is not for God, but for me. But Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you know God, you know him, you know the gospel, you know the great lengths that he went to save you from your disordered desires. You know what he desires from you. He wants to have your enjoyment rooted in and flowing from him who is love itself. His will is to make you holy in every aspect of your life. You know God. And to add even more weight to these commands, Paul brings in the heavy artillery. He invokes each member of the Trinity to bear on these important instructions. So look with me at the second half of verse 6. He says, abstain, control your body, do not transgress your body. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The Lord Jesus will return to judge the righteous and the wicked. Those declared righteous in Christ are saved from the wrath to come. But the sexually immoral, they'll be punished by the righteous judge. And this avenger, he won't need a hammer or a suit of armor to dole out justice. With his word, he will pronounce binding eternal judgment on the wicked. Whoever continues in lust will be cast into hell, a place of unending wretchedness. Paul is pressing in on them that persisting in lustful passion incurs the future judgment of Jesus. After the solemn warning of the future, Paul turns to God the Father's work in the past in verse 7. So look with me there. He says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And there it is again, holiness. God desires holiness in his people. And Paul says this elsewhere in, in the great passage of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should not have pleasure in ourselves, but that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. 
Before the world was formed, outside of time as we know it, God, in his love, determined to make his people his own. The goal was and is for his people to be holy as he is holy. Christians who persist in lust, and really this is, it's a paradox, they neglect the sovereign, gracious calling of God. Even more, as we see in verse 8, they reject God himself. Look with me at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has graciously called his people to himself. He has graciously sent Jesus to accomplish the plan of salvation through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. And what's more, God graciously gives his spirit. He promised to do this in Ezekiel 36. He promised, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The holy God lives in and among his chosen people in a way that allows them to be holy. The indispensable key to living a life of holiness is the present and ongoing presence of God's Holy Spirit in the believer. For Paul, the presence of the Holy Spirit is incompatible to a life given over to sexual immorality. Disobedience to the divine imperative negated the divine indicative of their relationship to God. Paul isn't offended so much that they rejected his words, but he wants the Thessalonians to feel the critical danger of rejecting God himself and indulging in their sexual passions. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know, I wonder what you think of what you've heard so far. You know, it sounds like, like more restrictions, doesn't it? And, and you might be thinking, you know, aren't we, aren't we tired of, of restrictions? You know, I didn't come here to hear more of what I have to do. You know, isn't it, isn't it my right to have my desires fulfilled? I want to be free to do as I please. What the Bible tells us is that God wants you to have pleasure, but you are looking for it in the wrong place. You are trying to, to slake your thirst, to quench your thirst in a, in a muddy well. Scrolling endlessly through, through racy pictures or videos, swiping right only titillates the senses so far. Endless fantasies are just that. They're fantasies, a mirage. Sex without God-honoring, other-centered, lifetime commitment is merely the aroma of a feast without actually tasting it. And in the end, your reward will be the judgment of Jesus himself. A pleasureless eternity without God 
in hell. And what Jesus offers is something better than any impurity promises. He offers you true, lasting, endless satisfaction. He offers you true rest and ardent love. Not having to hide part of yourself because he created you and he knows you. He died for sinners like you who do not yet know God who has spent their entire life chasing inferior pleasures and loves. When coming to Jesus, you, you bring nothing to the table other than confessing your need for him. Your desire to have his blood cover your sin, the guilt and shame of your past. All you need is faith. Faith to believe that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what any of the pleasures of this world will offer. That's the risk of faith. So many things in this world are too good to be true. But what Jesus offers is true and lasting goodness in himself. A life lived pleasing to God will lead to your ultimate pleasure. So turn to him, trust in his unchanging promises. The Bible tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. And our prayer at this church is that God will grant you the gift of faith to turn from pleasing yourself to pleasing God for your eternal joy. We've seen how pleasing God is what Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to continue doing specifically in regards to their sexual conduct. And now we turn to the end of our passage to Paul exhorting them to keep loving one another. So look with me at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. As we see in the Thessalonian church, they excelled in love within the Christian community. He said this multiple times in the letter, and he again praises them for it in verse 10. He says, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. The Thessalonian church, they had become known for loving other churches in the province of Macedonia through financial aid. Paul acknowledges their progress in displaying sacrificial love. But he knows the goal hasn't been reached yet in this life. He urges them to press on in several areas, as we see in verse 11. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to just aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Now, you might be asking, what, what does keeping your head down and, and minding your own business have to do with brotherly love? Remember that Christianity was still a, a fledgling movement, a young movement, probably not more than 30 years old. And the world was watching this, this new religion centered around a publicly humiliated teacher. Christians were being persecuted. Paul here is exhorting them not to be meddlers and busybodies, not to disturb the peace, not to cause any more reason for 
opposition and harm to their Christian family. He's exhorting them to love expressed in protecting the lives of their fellow saints. What about doing hard and honest labor, working with your own hands? It appears that, that some Christians in Thessalonica, they were, they were taking advantage of Christian generosity. You know, why, why work when I can rely on the provisions from those who are more, more pious than I am? And Paul's correction here is that those who are capable of obtaining employment, they must not exploit the generosity of others. There is no room for, for freeloaders in the Christian community. That is in opposition to mutual brotherly love. These commands serve a, a dual purpose as we come to the end of our passage in verse 12. He exhorts them to do this so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul is not encouraging complete self-sufficiency. This, that would be anti-gospel. Rather, he exhorts them to live as best as possible in a self-sufficient way. And the way they would live would demonstrate the distinctive, love-filled character of the church. As Jesus said in John 13, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love within the church would point those outside the church to Jesus. Now, if you've been following closely in our text, you'll notice that I skipped over a key phrase in the second half of verse 9. Paul does not need to give an exhaustive manual on how to love, and this is why. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. God teaches us how to love through his word, showing them that he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. It's all over the Bible. He teaches love through his Holy Spirit who imprints the law of God on our hearts, who teaches us to walk in his ways. But there is one more way. God teaches loves, love through the scriptures, through his spirit, and most fully in his son. You want to know what it looks like to love one another? Paul says, look at Jesus. Look to the cross. Jesus, he didn't take advantage of anyone. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life for the sinful world that he loved. John tells us in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In painful agony, Jesus satisfied the holy wrath of God against sin. With his own hands, he did the work of salvation that no one else was qualified to do. By his death and resurrection from the dead, he secured eternal salvation for God's elect, those whom God chose to be holy before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the perfectly holy Son of God, defines what love is on the cross. 
So my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, how, how do we respond to these glorious truths of who we already are in Christ, that we are holy, that we are saints? I see so much brotherly love in our church already. And I want to exhort us to wage war against sexual sin with a vengeance. In, in, in addressing this, I've been, I've been deeply affected by the writings of, of, of John Piper. And I'm going to touch on two things in our battle against sexual sin. Whether we're male or female, whether we're young or we're old, whether we're married or we're single. We're going to look at what is at stake and the key to victory. So what is at stake in our battle against sexual sin? Your eternity is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. It's a matter of heaven and hell. Look with me at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. This is his Sermon on the Mount, and this is his passage. This is his teaching regarding lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is what Jesus is saying. If you don't fight lust, you aren't going to heaven. If you don't rip out your wandering eye or your leering eye, if you don't cut off your hand that goes where it shouldn't, you aren't going to heaven. Here's why. The fight of faith is a sign of spiritual life. Faith in Christ delivers from hell. The Spirit grants us that saving faith. And that same faith delivers from lust. A spiritually person will not fight lust. Lust is too good. If you don't fight sexual sin, you aren't going to heaven. That is what is at stake in the battle against sexual sin. Now, what is the key to victory? We know what the stakes are, the, the gravity of our fight against sexual sin. What is the key to victory? The fight for faith is ultimately the battle to fight unbelief, the falsehood that the pleasures of lust will satisfy. So how do we fight this? How do we fight this? We push this truth deep into our souls that Jesus is better. He is better. Have you tasted and seen that God indeed is good? Have you been stunned by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Have you been astounded by his compassion, his worth, his beauty, his majesty, majesty, his humility? Have you been baffled by his simultaneous humanity and his divinity? Have you stood in awe at his pure, holy love at the cross? Has this knowledge given you an insatiable desire for more 
of Christ, an affection that expels all others. What's the key to victory? Look to Christ. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Gaze deeply into his word. Don't settle for for the gold that we find at the surface, but dig deep, dig often to find diamonds. So I exhort you, Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, press on, press on to know the Lord for your eternal joy, to know Christ in all of his glory, and fight lust, fight for holiness with all of your spirit-given might. Let's pray. Father, we desperately want to consider all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We want to be holy as you are holy. We pray that you would satisfy us every morning with your steadfast love in Christ, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. We claim your promise that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Make us pure as we continue to gaze by your Spirit's power at the glory of Christ. By your Spirit's power, help us to grow evermore in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.